0: Twist it, cause she's coming over Twist it, cause she's coming over Twist on me, twist on them Twist
1: on you Welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. This is me, your host, William Porteous. I'm slightly jaded, I suppose, like like some of us, going through this extremely strange period in, in history. God, I, I wonder if they're going to do the, the Crown 2020 and, you know, the Queen and what have you dealing with this particular nasty thing. Who's going to play Boris? Who knows? I'll, I'll do it. Slightly too young, but who cares? I'll give it a go. I, it's just one of those things. You just don't know, are we ever going to see the back of this thing, we probably will, we probably will, but it feels like at this moment in time, this false dawn is approaching, this end of the lockdown, which I'm sure is going to be wonderful for us all to see our family, but my goodness, you know, you wonder, how much longer is this shit going to go on for? I mean, really, in terms of vaccinations and what have you, but yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine, it's just, my god, but anyway... It really, it really is difficult. You've got to ruminate for a while before you actually do it. Do it, I think. So, welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast. This is me, your host, William Porteous. It's slightly uh, jaded, I suppose. A bit of lockdown lunacy is going on. I, I, I don't know quite what that means. I don't necess- It doesn't necessarily mean that it's in a, an eccentric creative fashion none of that this weekend just gone i promised myself uh, craft beer and six music i did those things but i didn't get high i didn't get the buzz as i did previous two weekends because the sun was lacking i think people are very lucky to have the sun during lockdown I, i i think that some of it has slightly accelerated the problem because people like to go out and sunbathe in parks, apparently in groups, which is bizarre and strange to me and ridiculous. But it's been a wonderful companion, I think. I think mean, we all know that, and it it keeps keeps me going. And frankly, when I'm gardening as well, it's it's a wonderful way off. It's it's beautiful. But I, I wonder how your weekend was. I mean, was it any was it any good? Was it up up to anything? We just sat in a room looking at a TV. Going through the old uh, Best of Eddie Murphy movies. Best of Eddie Murphy movies. What's that? Jeez. Coming to America. What else has he got? Trading Places. Bowfinger. The list goes on. What else were you doing? You know, maybe watching some, uh, I don't know, Best of 15 to 1. That must be good. Best of... Uh, i trying to think of that Carol Valdeman one. I can't do it. But anyway, look. This week is a... It's a, it's a funny one because this is Dom Jolly week and and therefore a good week for me because it was one of the easiest interviews I've ever set up set up in my life. I we do talk about it in the intro uh, of the conversation between he and I and uh, it's very it's very funny how quickly we put it together. And just how open he was in this interview. Really enjoyed it. And he really enjoyed it as well. Always makes a difference, that, doesn't it? When the person you're talking to actually wants to be spoken to. And he he, he was great. Really enjoyed myself. I thought he, he opened up in a really constructive way. And we were able to really explore what he's done, not only in Trigger Happy TV, but also travelling the world and, and in uh, politics as well. It's funny, though, because... With Trigger, at Happy TV, obviously, I I couldn't place where it fell in my life and realize. And Don points out that in the interview that I was sixteen. I had no idea I was that young. I thought I was like in my twenties or something. That fucking scared the shit out of me. But what are your memories of of Trigger Happy TV? Because the one that always used to ruminate with me was when he used to do the interviews and then have a fake like migraine or something and, and just fall over. Or have fake stomach cramp or something and run away whilst doing an interview with, like, Michael Palin or whoever. And mine one is the dogs. The dogs, the the people dressed up in the dog costumes and set to, like, Pixies or whatever or some intense Radiohead song and and they're beating the crap out of each other. I love that. Jeez. Trigger Happy TV. That really, wow, just started something there. But, uh, yeah, so we talk about that. Obviously, you'll enjoy it, because (laughs) it's Tom Jolly, for Christ's sake. He's a good guy. Really, really good. Really good guy. But yeah, fast forward, I think what we're going to do from now on is bring out two episodes a week. I've got quite a few lined up. I've got the lovely Lindsay Chapman coming in. You might know from Springwatch, we're going to talk nature. Yeah, man, we're going to get serious. There's a lot of it going on at the moment. I suppose people are going out a lot more in their cars, so it's slightly more noisy, but uh, it's still a lot, lot more quieter than usual, and I think it's bringing a lot of people closer to nature. You have probably noticed. Going on walks, the birds, the bees, it's wonderful, it's exciting, it's so essential. For the uh, for the soul, and that's where it's brought me. So Lindsay is probably gonna I'm probably gonna bring that one out on Sunday Sunday evening. Do look her up; she's wonderful, A great chat, wonderful time. And uh, yeah, and I also wanted to bring to her attention this new thing that I've thought of. It took me about twelve seconds, um, partly inspired by Richard and Judy, because they really are the cornerstone of any form of broadcasting entertainment, uh, presenting documentary, have they made a documentary? Jesus, he must have done, whatever his name is, Richard Madeley, he must have made a few documentaries in his time, god almighty you wouldn't be surprised if Richard Madeley made a documentary about, I don't know, like Hungarian porn or something, and just behind Judy's back, just be like Judy just sees it one day on the telly is that you Richard? Richard's like no love, so, Judy Get back in the bedroom. Get back in your get back in your box. Piss off. I'm not saying like that's how he speaks to, in in reality, but it's something I reckon it's something like that. But anyway, uh, yeah. So we're doing. I, I want to do a b- book kind of clubby book corner book. Sit in a room and read and talk about it thing. So the first book up is Stoner by John Williams. And I'm going to be dropping an episode where we talk about it, me and Steve Ullman, that is, we talk about it uh, in detail, because Steve Ullman is a great guy and he's written a book about Stoner, one of the greatest books ever written. We unpack it in quite a lot of detail and that'll be in about a month's time. So I'm giving you a month to read Stoner by John Williams. So this will be called a novel idea. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know. I'm tired and frankly I don't give a shit. you know it's at the end who gives a crap what you name a book club it's going to be called novel idea get your, get a you know get over it and uh, you'll enjoy it and it will be stoner so you you, you go out and you buy it you audio book it whatever audible go out and kindle it up your wazoo but either way in a month's time we're going to be talking about it and probably in the fu- probably in the future, Patricia Highsmith as well, because she's one of the greatest um, novelists of all time, in my opinion. So yeah, another thing for you, which is quite amusing to me slash important, would be the chopping of my hair. I'm going grade one. I'm going grade one. You may have noticed over the years, it's. If you pictures i put on Twitter or Facebook. My hair is foppish. It's floppy. It's a little bit like Hugh Grant in the 1990s. All the 1990s. And I wanted to do something for Shelter, the wonderful charity, help the homeless and the vulnerable at the moment. And I thought, what better way than just Take off the fucking floppy hair, you know, it's flopping, it gets in the way, it's it's hot in the summer now, it gets so sweaty when I'm doing the Peloton thing. So look, if you've got any money, if you've got a pound left after this COVID shit, then well done. But give it to me and help shelter, help the homeless, help the vulnerable. You You can donate by going to my Facebook page, which is The Limehouse Podcast. Okay, now that is on Facebook. And it's all up there. the links for just giving it's it's all there. you know it's wonderful. You'll, it's wonderful, whatever. And I, whatever you can spare, it's going to a really good cause. So that's about it really. But before I go, as always, some days are That website is where you will find my short film, the name starring Tim Bentinck written by me, did did the music, directed by Colin Midgley, the one and only. You can watch that short film, it's 20 minutes long, it's really, I love it to pieces, it's kind of adventurous, it's got countryside in it of course, Uh, it's uh, very romantic but in in a different kind of a way, a family orientated way, and oh god, romantic in a family orientated way, it's not incest based, it's not, it's wholesome. But you'll enjoy it. Go to my website and check it out. It's uk. So enjoy this conversation that I had with Dom Jolly. A wonderful man. Very generous with his time. Share. Share the podcast. Share it around. Tell your, tell your friends. It helps a lot. And frankly... Keep breathing, keep believing, all this will pass. Literally just put my daughter down, so it's like, you know, if you remember back in the day, because you've you got older ones, haven't you? Oh yeah,
2: they just yeah. As bad.
1: Oh my god, it's the stress level, it's like unfucking believable
2: Where are you?
1: Uh, where am I? I'm mean, um, in sydenham had to think there see I, I can't even tell you where i fucking live right now it's like that um yeah no it's completely completely mental it's, it's, it's just it's, it's taking her off, off my wife because my wa- wife's working from home and looking after our 20 month old whilst night trying night. to work right, yeah whilst trying to work it's 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 ridiculous
2: you know i was just thinking if i do lockdown with young kids jesus
1: yeah yeah exactly uh, how, how how's lockdown going for you anyway
2: i just find it very um uh, I don't know it just pulls everything back to to basics really yeah it's like just the important things I'm getting on with my family we're just having a really nice time go for the dogs there's no work to do so I don't do any work yeah it's just lovely
1: yeah because you're, you're in like Cheltenham or something aren't you yeah 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 I've um I've got a friend down there um and an, an ex down there and it's just it's just so stunning it's big country you know big country
2: it's also I mean when I grew up Cheltenham was a place you went to die really um (laughs) and and it was like an old age home but actually and and I used to remember thinking visiting my granny here and thinking if I ever lived here I'd kill myself but actually (laughs) um here I am but it is really lovely now and it's pretty hip now actually so Rather than it, for replacement, which is what it used to be.
1: Yeah, it's getting there. I'm, my only my first memory of Cheltenham is a five and a half six hour drive from Guildford to do a shitty shitty gig in the Frog and
2: whatever it's called. Oh my um, God! Yeah, that's it, the corner for me. That's a shithole. Yeah, that's just yeah. been closed down for uh, food hygiene. Actually,
1: <laughs> oh, I mean, it's been closed down. Oh no! No, it's
2: not. It is open, but oh, it, right. it, it did have a food hygiene issue.
1: Have you closed it down, Dom? Is that have you found? Have you got an online petition and you're behind it?
2: No, my daughter's obsessed with food <laughs> hygiene ratings. And so oh, really? she look, She has this website where if anyone gets a naught or a 1, it kind of pings her and it said the frog or whatever it is. And I'm like, fuck, I've eaten there. That's terrible. <laughs> how, but, yeah. how, old,
1: how old is she? Uh, 19. Oh, OK, right. In my, in my head, you've got like seven and eight-year-olds. But then, you know, you're like, you're 50 now, right? Oh, yeah. You're a proper grown-up.
2: No, oh, no. Look Same. at you. I'm a proper grown-up now. By yeah. the way,
1: this moustache, it was unintentional. Not there I,
2: sorry? Not there before lockdown.
1: Yeah, you know, and he was a quiz. And one of the quizzes <laughs> was, the theme was YMCA, uh, Wayne's World <laughs> I Do you know what? I fucking didn't. I, 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 sh- I shaved a moustache. I still didn't fucking win. What's that all about?
2: It's a good yeah. test, though. Thanks, my
1: friend. Although I'm very worried that it's a bit trendy East London, you know, and I'm nowhere near East London, but it's still one of those things, you know. Go, there goes one of those guys. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it, it's been amazing, like, researching. Well, first of all, it, it was fucking awesome having you be so damn quick and saying yes to the interview, which was extraordinary. I, I must say that was the quickest thing i have ever lined up in my entire life.
2: Everyone um, always says that, but it's just like, I'm not busy, so why not?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I had... My, I think I booked Michael Heseltine once in about yeah. six minutes. Yeah, but you probably think... had to pay him there. No, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. No, and and that and that got me headlines as well, which was fucking insane. So, what? yeah, that why was that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, do, it was a couple of Christmases ago, um, and he said on my podcast that uh, Labour government would be preferable to Brexit. Oh, that's and, right. Um,
2: that's that's when he kind of he yeah. kind of said he'd vote Labour. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was you.
1: That was great. <laughs> that was me, man. Yeah. That was that was my moment. My one my, well, my perfect good. moment. Um but yeah, and that, that took like six minutes to set up. Yours was like about three minutes, so I thank you for that. But it's all um, right. it has been awesome researching you because it's taken me on my own little personal journey. Um because I remember like sitting and watching Trigger Happy and being like, Fuck, what is this? You know? How only I'm thirty eight, so I don't
2: know right, how you're perfect. You're like fucking acorn that's perfect yeah
1: yeah there you go so man. you're like
2: 16 when it went out so it's just yeah. bang on yeah
1: yeah and like i'd, I'd never really experienced that before because i was too young for um oh christ what's the chris morris um thing um, yeah yeah and brass iron and the one before that you know i I was i was all um
2: Day was to- and stuff.
1: the day-to-day yeah part See, i love
2: the day-to-day but it's very different things because day-to-day i mean i'm a news junkie so day-to-day to yeah. me was Day-to-day did to the news what Spinal Tap did to music docs. You just can't really take the piss out of it any because they just nailed it. Brass Eye was brilliant, but there was so much anger in Brass Eye. And I'm not ang- – well, I am angry, actually, about things. But I'm not politi- – I am political, but I'm not political. Uh, and Brass Eye was trying to make a point all the time. I don't know. I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about, actually, because Brass Eye was genuinely genius. But I think, in a way, Brass Eye was so dark that it was incredible. Um yeah. I think what I loved about making Trigger Happy was I wanted to make the lowest rung of comedy, which is hidden camera, and something that before had just been Beatles about and just shit. You know? I mean, really, just the just the sort of area inhabited by morons, really. Right. Um, and I wanted to make that art, because to me it is art, you know, if it's done right. And right. it hadn't been before. It sounds really poncy to say it, and I hate saying that, but I kind of get so bored with people saying, oh, all you've done is hidden camera. But that's like saying all you've done is a sitcom. Like, they're all different. Some are shit, some are good, you know.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely agree. I must say, at 16, I was a little bit of a bookish lad at 16. I I definitely stopped, for some fucking reason, I stopped reading. But I remember reading, like, The Great Gatsby when I was younger. Didn't understand it. Didn't understand it. But
2: but the fact you wanted to read is, like, great. That's exactly what I do. I used to hang out sitting with a book, not even reading it, saying, look at me with my book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: I, I think i would up, up you on that one I used to deliberately skip to page 100 Because I used to think Wow, my God Imagine what it's like to read 100 pages of something So I'd skip to the 100 And then read that Like whatever I could of that And then just I don't know Show off in front of my sisters Just going Hey
2: Look what well, I've done There's a magic number for books Because uh, If you haven't Supposedly as a writer If you haven't hooked A reader by page 100 You're never going to yeah so that is like a real cutoff like it's acceptable to leave a book uh to just stop reading a book before you get to page 100 once you got to 100 you've committed i think
1: life's too short but, yeah um what was, what was i yeah no the, the one thing that, that we, i don't know why the, the out trigger um all the sketches that you did the one that really like i fucking remembered the most was the dogs beating each other up in season okay. one or whatever it was
2: i was like you see, it's such a weird story about that because I love that as well. Because Trigger was, in a way, more about music than comedy. Because really, I'm a frustrated pop singer and I wanted to put music onto things. So. Firstly, Trigger Happy is very different from any other show in that I would choose a track and put it onto what I'd shot. But normally, you cut to the joke, whereas I cut to the music. So I put the track I wanted and then extend the joke. So normally, you cut to the joke, but I extend the joke to the music, but also those dogs, that was when Trigger Happy started, I kind of wanted to make a point, and it's a bit brass-eye-ish. I used to wander down London and see all these CCTVs and think, who the fuck is watching all this CCTV? And I wonder if we did something weird, whether anyone would notice. So originally, all those jokes started, the shot started on CCTV camera, and then panned down to a dog executing another dog to opera, (laughs) <laughs> and I just love the idea that somewhere someone was just sitting watching a bank of CCTVs and just would suddenly go, "What? What was that?" But then yeah. when I went to the edit, actually that didn't matter anymore. Like I got rid of the pan down and just slow would it and whacked on some lovely stuff, and that was it really.
1: Man, I, I've got to say, like if that that's me, I I was because one one of my things is when I and I now I'm thirty eight and I haven't visited Trigger Happy in a little while. Was the yeah, well, that's the thing, right? A lot of artists don't do that. They don't revisit, you know. Um, but yeah. I i do I do think, like, here's a guy that not only has got a fuckload of shit that he wants to say, like, I don't know. Whether you, you know, I, I'm worried using the word backed up because it does sound a little bit constipated, but, you know, backed up with ideas and, and frustrated with, with, with comedic content that he wants to get out there, but also this awesome passion for music. And, yeah. I picked out the dog thing because of the music sets to it sets to. It. It's kind of like a music video, right? It's really it's but It really was tranquil. like a music
2: video, but also kind of summed up Trigger Happy in that actually a lot of the songs I chose particularly on those those clips from Jacques Brel to a beautiful uh, YouTube um Pavarotti mix called Sarajevo Miss Sarajevo. It was actually really beautiful. And and if you watch that for a moment, you could almost you felt yourself being a bit moved by it. And then you'd remember that you're just watching two people in fucking rental dog costumes. It's so lo-fi and shit. And that's what I sort of loved about Trig Happy is that really it was a really silly program, but it had unwarranted depth. And that's and a lot of that came from the music, you know, which wasn't I'd love to claim credit for it. I chose it, but yeah. I didn't write the music. So I always felt a bit fraudulent that the real emotion from Trig Happy came from this beautiful music, you know.
1: Yeah, fucking too right. Like I absolutely loved it. I think it was too alternative for me at sixteen, I was still into status quo and Led Zeppelin. But um Nothing yeah, wrong with that for those. Too too goddamn right, mate. Too fucking damn right. I had a massive long conversation with John Harris about status quo. It was me- it was meant to be political. Or just not even political, it was just meant to be about life in his life and it just ended up being like about status quo for literally 20 minutes which was
2: listen i mean they opened up live they were going in the 60s i mean anyone do that total fucking respect you know yeah damn straight you know my favorite status quo song i know it's the worst one but i love in the army now i just think it's amazing
0: (laughs) it's
1: great it's lying over your head uh yeah sorry you got me there um but yeah, look, we're in danger of talking about status quo again, you know, but I could do it. I don't give a shit, you know.
2: Oh, so could I? I think my one, I think the one thing I, I know about my music taste is I, I know I've got great music taste, but I've got a lot of friends that got good music taste as well. But the difference is they're music snobs. And so, for instance, status quo, if they heard status quo and didn't know status quo and they liked it, they said, oh, what's this? And if you said status quo, they'd go, oh, I can't like it, yeah. and to me, I, I fucking hate that. I can love a Kylie Minogue song as much as I love a Nick Cave song. I mean, and in fact, they did something together, but, but, so that's a bad example, but you know what I'm saying? No, I just not think perfectly. any song that gives me that feeling, yeah. I just want to play that again, is just a work of art to me. Yeah. And I don't have, and that's what Trigger Happy was, really. Uh, I kind of, I am a snob. I'm very culture-snobbed in that there are certain things I think are beautiful, and certain things I think are cheap and horrible, but actually, Trigger Happy is a bit of both because it's essentially a hidden camera show, but it's got weird, weird stuff in it, and it's got beautiful music. So I don't know, you know.
1: What about like the old, the older people? Because I think it's adorable. Like you, you're not
2: See, an, I, ar- you're not an asshole I, to them. If I got any shit for Trigger Happy, it was particularly I think the park warden sketch. Uh, people go, "Oh, you just go and pick on old people," and it, that really irritates me because, firstly. If you walk into a park in London at any time, you'll find there are only two people. There are old people and drunk mental people. And I didn't pick up mental people. Uh, I loved picking on the old people, but specifically for specific characters. And the whole point of the park warden was that he was treating old people as though they were a teenage gang. So approaching four old people on a, on a bench and accusing them of graffitiing wild white swans rock or I can't remember what I said, or letting off fireworks. There's something crazily funny about that. But also what I love is their reaction to it because there's a part of them that really loved the fact that people thought, yeah, you look like the guys that could do that really. But also <laughs> I got, you know, I'd get consents afterwards. So no one it wasn't like you just turned up. Everyone that we I did was compass and knew what was going on. Because there's no I mean I could easily just picked on mentals and which is what a lot of shows do, or faked it. What's the point, you know? I thought before. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I d- I just think it's quite endearing actually, because the jokes on the part Warden, not them. It's, it's it's funny, it's cute. Well, that's um, what
2: I always hoped. It was never more Beadle and all the old school ones were like, "Here's me, I'm going to find the thing you like the most and fuck it up and make you angry." Yeah. And to me, what I wanted was more. I wanted people thinking, "Who is this mad person, and how do I deal with him?" And I loved the idea that they went home that evening. And someone said, how was your day? And you go, yeah, it was all right. Oh, actually, it was a bit weird. This scout came up and asked me to get his homoerotic badge or something like that. It was just about inserting a bit of weirdness into yeah. someone's life. That's what I liked about it. Yeah,
1: man, I loved it. I loved it. I, I, I think, because <laughs> I've done a few, like um, a lot of YouTube comedy sketches with my mate uh, as a gardener. So he, he's, he was about... 50 the last time we worked together so he's quite a bit older than me he's like about 12 13 years older than me and he was a boss he used to get bored right and he would be the one that would instigate right he'd go right we're making a video a comedy video and we'd just fuck off for like five minutes you know whilst we were meant to be working in a garden and just fuck around do like comedy sketches and i'm not i'm not saying like you know it was genius or anything but it was such a outlet to break up the day
2: and of course it's a rush it's yeah. like bit of surrealism a day keeps the doctor away
1: keeps correct yeah right yeah exactly but when you're running away like punchlines of some of your sketches you know you you run away from one of your interview you know (laughs) one of your interviews uh richard marx or whatever his name is
2: and um
1: is richard richard marx the singer or
2: no idea richard marx is but i ran away Lot of people. Yeah,
1: was that like for you when you? Because I was thinking about this today when you were running away from people after. Like, are you thinking, "Fucking hell, that's the I get one take at this." what yeah. what's going through your head when you were running away? Well, there's from...
2: lots of things in that. Firstly, if I was doing a joke on the member of the public, which was like a joke, not specific to a member of the public, it was great because you'd go up, have a go. I'd never know what I was going to say because the whole thing's ad libbed, and then you think, "Oh, that didn't quite work," or they didn't sign. You could do it again, but with. What was exciting about about celebs was that you knew they were doing some press conference or whatever, and you knew you only had one go at it, so the adrenaline was fucking high. But then often, if I'm being really kind of intellectual about it, uh, I, I've had panic attacks all my life and stuff, and I, I often ran away from things. So actually, it's so stressful, the tension when you're doing it. When I knew I'd got it, it was so amazing, I would literally just run away and that was a bit like what I do anyway. If I find things too hard, I run away. But also, I knew that once I ran away, the best thing ever in Trigger Happy was the thing he never saw, which was then Sam, who's still there filming, the guy would run away, and he and both of them would turn around and go, what the fuck is that? And Sam would go, well, I don't know, he just hired, and Sam would have to go through this complicated, he just hired me as a cameraman, and I've got recordings of Sam having these imaginary phone conversations going, yeah, no, it's incredible. No, he just ran away from Mr. Botham. It's unbelievably unprofessional. So that was the best thing for me. And I'd be watching, laughing my head off, hiding in the van. So, yeah, because all of it was, you know, Sam could basically just enjoy it. As long as he pressed record, he could watch it and enjoy the whole thing. Whereas I, I had all the pressure on me. So actually, I always felt when I ran away, this is great. I can now sit and watch Sam like squirm a bit. I just, I get that though. Like the adrenaline, you know. I'd... Oh, the rush was insane. Sometimes when we did a hit, however stupid it was, and we kind of thought, right, we're waiting and Sam's in the window, like, and we had like really shit comms, but it's like, right, you ready? I'm ready. And you just look at this street and it's really ordinary. And it felt like you are about to do a bank robbery, but a really shit bank robbery. And you just knew that you were about to change the dynamic of that street. It sounds so sad. But it was just exciting. It was really fun.
1: Mate, that's cool. Yeah. So how, how old
2: were you then? Like... Uh, 30 when we did Trigger Happy. So I think, again, that helped me a little bit because I think most comedians, like if, I, if YouTube had been around, I would have just whacked it straight on YouTube. Probably done that when I was 18. But I'd done all my serious stuff. Most people do stupid stuff first and then they get serious. I mm. did the other way around. I, I was quite serious. I was a diplomat for fuck's sake. I'd been to university. I was a diplomat in Prague. I worked in in Parliament for ITN as a producer, and I'd done all this. So I think once I got to actually doing trigger happy, I had a bit of. It's kind of like how MPs shouldn't be MPs at eighteen. You've got to have a bit of life experience because it gives you a bit of more gravitas to go with. That's why so many pranksters fucking bore me because they're like they're just frat boys who are just trying to pinch girls' asses and stuff. They just they've got no depth to them at all. Yeah. I, and. I think when you have that depth, it means you don't have to force it into your show. Like Trigger Abbey is inherently silly, but it's funny and it's kind of, I don't know. I just felt it was perfect time to do it. You know, I'd kind of tried normal life and now I was going to take the piss out of it. But you have to try it first, you know.
1: But what about like, for example, like I think I read something the other day about you being literally, you first episode had gone out, you were on the train somewhere and you just heard someone doing the whole, Hello I'm on oh, I'm that, on my and, and that was literally hello, I'm on my phone, I'm on I'm on my mobile. That, phone,
2: that was literally it's very rare you know a moment. you know, you have like I I'm always very um uh, jealous of bands because they have that moment where they sign the record contract. You know, and like even if your life fucks up after that, you've got that moment where you're like, We've done it. Telly doesn't really work like that. It's sort of drip feeds, like, yes you can make the show, but then you've got to make the show. There's never a moment, even when Trig Abby went out it was a hit. I wasn't aware it was a hit till five years later. Really, I understood how big a hit it was. But there was one moment a week after Trigabby went out. I think Trigabby went out on Friday night, 14th of January 2000, because it's the 20th anniversary. And I was on a train on the Tuesday going to Oxford. And that ringtone went off on the train. No one knew I was on it. And it went da-da-da-da, because by then it was the Nokia default tune. And three people on the carriage who didn't know I was there, didn't know each other, all went... Hello, I'm on the train, and I, I was like, "Fuck!" Do they know I'm here? And, then, and I like, they didn't know I was here, and then I was like, "Fuck!" And honestly, it was like I couldn't understand it. Like everything changed. I was like, "Fuck!" I've done something that's got the zeitgeist, and I didn't know what the rules were. No one had kind of told me what to do. It was fucking yeah. weird, but it was exciting as well.
1: God, I bet I can't. I can't even exactly. imagine. What that...
2: Sorry. <laughs> It
1: was insane. Yeah, no, I bet. I, I can't even imagine how you deal with that. Like, because it's like I'm you not said. Very like, well. <laughs> like, not, not very well. Not very well. There's a lot of, like, right. pressure, right? After that, I should imagine. I
2: hate it. I mean, I love being famous to an extent. Mm. I love being famous because it, I don't like, I'm actually weirdly shy, even though people, you know, by dressing as a snail, people think you're not. And, and I don't like the walking into a room, having to prove myself. And actually, fame brings very nice things. People just, they cut out, small talk they're just like oh it's you and blah 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 and you just get straight into a chat with people but then you realize that they'll let people only chat to you depending on the value of your fame so as that goes then you realize who are the real people you know all the usual cliches fame is a mask that eats away at your face and all that crap fame is a very slow slide into obscurity which is true but it's been great for me it's allowed it's opened so many doors to me and allowed me to do things i've never done before but um but it is weird. You're constantly chasing that hit, that high, of trigger happy, and yet I was desperately unhappy when it was happening. So it's very weird.
1: So in what in what sense were you unhappy, man? It was just like a like a there was just too much of a strain, too much of the focus was on you. Or
2: no, God, I'm I'm such an egotist. I think that was all right. I think it was that I realised. I think it was that I'd never even thought about being a comedian. What I really wanted to be was a writer. And so the fact that I kind of stumbled into being a comedian, I think part of me felt I didn't deserve it because it's a very difficult skill I've got. If I wrote a sitcom or I wrote a film or as an actor, that's a craft. But I don't think people value what I do because Trigger, because Hidden Camera is seen as a very low rung. And I don't think people, people always say who wrote Trigger Happy? I go, what do you mean who wrote it? I made it all up on the spot and people don't see that. They don't. It, so I think I don't feel it's a skill. I don't think it's valued. Um, and then I don't know. I don't know what it is. And I think I realized that I'd had this massive fucking hit. And that even though it's an easy problem to have, I was I was always going to be compared to that. Yeah, Whereas yeah. I never really wanted that. Everyone's like, oh, you you haven't been funny since Trigger Happy. I go, yeah, but I was pretty funny in Trigger Happy. So that's one more than you. But it's very weird. I don't know. No, it's It's an odd thing. I don't know. I mean, these are very much first world problems i mean it's given me everything i'm in a beautiful house because of it and i have a happy life and i wouldn't change anything my last 20 years but it is an odd thing
1: but it's also a quite interesting thing to reflect on you you're you're clearly i don't know whether you are just at the moment you're being reflective i don't know
2: how relevant that is to the rest of your life i'm a goth
1: Yeah. yeah yeah true true
2: um in your early years right well, always. You're never an ex-Goth.
1: You're never an ex-Goth. I love You're that. You're like a
2: Scientologist. You can't really leave. <laughs>
1: You're not allowed. You, you, no. you can try, but they're going to fucking find you, you know? Well, I was
2: a goth, and I never really – I didn't really like goth music. I mean, most of goth music is appalling, like the mission and shit like that. And I joined the goth movement, but I was never really initiated. No one ever told me the rules. I'm quite a cheerful person, so I got kicked out in the end for being quite optimistic. <laughs> I don't know. I've never really understood goth, the, the world of goth.
1: Are you someone that feels like you kind of need to belong to a, a gang? Uh, like not necessarily
2: no, now. I'm very but... much perhaps, to anyone that have me as a member. I don't want to join. I I, I hate it. I'm very unclubbable. It's one of the reasons that I find comedy difficult, and I haven't really done much in comedy, is because comedy is very much on personal relationships and, Niche. you know, being, being in the gang. And I hate that. I, I just, I, I, just it's not me at all. Dom, I, I cannot agree.
1: I can't agree with you anymore. i I yeah. I, I can't I, I tried it for six months, and the level of fucking clique and BS made
2: me want to vomit. And, just,
1: and the, or just being around comedians that were always on. Do you know what I mean? Like constantly when they're well, talking to you. I
2: mean, it's very rare that I meet a comedian that I like as a person. But also, like, I'm much more into music and bands. I love bands. You know, bands are much more realistic. And although I don't want to be in a band now, I've realised the nightmare of having to play your only hit over and over again. It'd be like me going on stage having to shout hello all the time. But but bands are very accepting. Like, you can be a hit band, and you can be happy there's another band having a hit. In comedy, there's only ever room for one person in town, and it's very – it's just very unfunny, funny.
0: Yeah.
2: And I just – I find everything. I try and make – it's my defense mechanism, but I make everything funny, and I try and – make a joke of everything and actually it's the one thing comedians don't do they're in, they're incredibly bitter dark quite unhappy people really and mm-hmm. I'm not I'm really happy
1: i mean cuz what what really interests me about you and i suppose that you must get this quite a lot is your your childhood your background and where you come from do yeah you, how, i mean you know most people are going to know you you were um you've come from beirut born in beirut lebanon never talk about
2: it but
1: yeah you, you never talk about it I always talk about it. I was it. going to say, I was going to say, yeah. fucking hell, man. Because it's fucking mad. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's interesting. So, in I, as, sorry.
2: And I'm, It's mad. And I, I totally understand. If I was a psychoanalyst, I'd know exactly where I come from because I'm from an English family, but they grew up in the middle of a civil war in Lebanon. In Lebanon, I was always the English guy. I came to boarding school here, and I was this guy that lived in Lebanon in a war. So I never really fitted in anywhere. Uh, and I always floated above things a bit. And and Which allowed me to sort of observe almost it was like an out-of-body experience Mm. on top of that I was incredibly English in that I went to boarding schools where you're taught, you know, sarcasm and attack before you're attacked and that sort of British stiff upper lip But all the things I read as a kid were much more European asterisks lucky Luke tintin weird Belgian French things which very much give me my humor the things that make me laugh are pointless things. They're things, you know. my favorite things in the world are Belgians. The, there was a guy called Neil Godin in Belgium, and he, he just used to get annoyed at people on the telly that he felt had got up themselves a bit. So let's say as a, I don't know, like a Jeremy Paxman or whatever, if he was getting a bit up himself, and so he would decide he's got up himself, and he would get a gang of people together, and they'd all get custard pies, and they'd go to a bar, and drink Belgian anarchist songs, just before they were gonna meet whoever was doing an appearance, and then they would go and throw pies at them, because in his mind, he said, you can the only way you can truly define someone's character is how they behave when they're hit by a custard pie. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but he, the point is in England, someone would have put a YouTube channel, would have tried to get it on channel four, probably have a column in the the mail, and and he, he just did it for the beauty. And when we were doing Trigger Happy, we had this thing called For the Beauty, which was basically when we were driving around all the time, there were just things that made us laugh. And they'd never translate to telly, but they were the most pure laugh. Like when you've got your mates and you're in the pub and there's like an in-joke and it just makes you so happy that you all get it and no one else gets it. And that for me was called For the Beauty. And that to me is what life is about. You know, if I had to write a a proper, a third book of my life, I'd call it For the Beauty.
1: Great. That's... So that's such an honest answer i just i it's just interesting to me like how because I, I went to boarding school as well i had a, a fucking awful time i hated it i had terror terrible so life. just yeah. awful homesickness you know did yeah. you did you get the homesickness
2: oh my god i just beyond anything i mean i can understand why because my parents lived in lebanon's in middle of the war they sent me there but i'm like why have fucking kids you know and i've got kids and the first thing i said is I'm never gonna send my kids boarding. I mean, why would you? I got sent off at seven. It's like, what the fuck is that about? It's insane. And I remember my parents dropping me off at a house in Oxford, and I thought we were going there for tea. They'd never told. They didn't tell me. And I remember thinking, God, these these people, the Browns, have got a lot of kids. And then my parents fucked off. That was it. And uh, they'd never told me. And it's like, it's insane, you know. But I did not blame them. They were just from that generation of Brits. We, that just didn't say then, anything, you know.
1: Was that like a, a term border? Did you sit like for, for, for like a few weeks or was that a weekly border? No, no, it was a term. And they, that it was, was
2: but, then, but, you know, but then my dad, he grew up during the war and so he lived in Lebanon as well and he got sent off and he'd only go home for uh, summer holidays because by the time he took a ship out to Lebanon and back, he couldn't. So for him, he thought I was spoiled, you know, I was coming back in the holidays. But I'm not grumbling. Like, I love the excitement of it all, but it was just there. Their non-communication was a very mm. British thing there.
1: But no, I mean, like, I, I don't think you you have to necessarily say you're grumbling. I, I think like, we spend so much of our lives like saying first world problems and, and without actually ever dealing with the real fucking problem. No, no, I nice, agree totally. You know?
2: But that's a very knee-jerk reaction to being on social media where you almost anticipate that, you know, if someone watches this now, underneath will be, oh, poor poor little rich middle-class kid, oh, poor posh boy, you know, all that stuff. So there is a there is a level of self-awareness you do have to go through because mm-hmm. although I did get sent away to a posh school, I went to the most expensive school in the country. Uh, I was there with Radiohead and most of the current Tory cabinet I had an amazing fucking education. And compare that to being, you know, two parents on heroin in the Easter House estate in Glasgow, I totally get it. But I, it's like when people say first world problems. I'm like, well, I live in the first world. I can only deal with that. Right. You know, so, yeah,
1: yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you said that. Because, but I do think
2: yeah. there there has to be a, an element of self awareness about it. Yeah, I mean, I defend. I'm overly defensive, but I think I prefer that to being completely non-understanding why I'm talking like an arse. You know. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, it's cool because I I I just think a lot of what you're you're talking about here directly translates into your work after um, trigger, like your travel programs, be it with your either three best mates or your first best mate, you know, like, was it Stuart or something? I can't remember his name. Um, Yeah. And, um, you know, and it's, it's really sweet. Like what I genuinely see in you in like 2005, when you did that series, when you went or that the program, when you went back home, yeah, yeah. really genuinely saw like a little boy going home. And you were so fucking proud of like going back to Beirut and going, just showing, showing your mate around. And it was so sweet, but you could definitely see something behind, I'm reading into this too much, believe me. No, you
2: you don't even understand the insanity of that show. When I went back, I mean, the complications of my dad and we were estranged were so insane that there was a moment in that show where I went to a restaurant and I met this guy called Pepe Abed who kind of ran the restaurant and I signed my name. I had a photograph with him and he put me on the wall. And growing up, but, but the insanity of that, and, and and then just as we're filming the restaurant, my dad turns up at the restaurant, but doesn't want to be on camera, doesn't even know I'm in Lebanon. So I'm filming this whole thing, and my dad is at a table next door where the real story is, and we can't even film it. I mean, honestly, the levels of stuff, you'd never understand. I write about it in my new book, There's yeah. What Opened Up. I try and sort of deal with it in that. But yeah, no, it's insane. But I was, I loved it. Travel's what I wanted. When I grew up in Lebanon, you know, the comedy wasn't a career. In fact, even if I'd grown up in England, comedy wasn't it's not something you could have thought of doing as a career and so for me the exciting people when i grew up were diplomats foreign correspondents and spies actually and i've been at least two out of three i might have been three but i can't tell you uh, but i was a diplomat in prague i was a foreign correspondent at the beijing olympics i wrote for the independent uh, so that kind of and all that stuff the sort of working at itn the interviews in trigger happy then the travel program to me, they all make total sense. But if you look at my CV, people go, I'm just doing a tour at the moment that got stopped by coronavirus about holiday snaps. You know, I've been to more than 100 countries and people are like, what's the tour about? And I go, well, I think people that watch Trigger Happy are very different from the people that read my travel books. And I think there are a lot of people going, why is the squirrel guy in North Korea? That doesn't make sense to me. But to me, if you know the whole story, even though I haven't planned it, it all makes total sense. Like, but yeah. But it doesn't
1: no no but yeah there are people that are like fucking gonna be like totally picking up they'll, what they what they'll be able to do is go different different chapters of your life and go oh wow yeah. you know didn't realize yeah. that you know yeah. by the tours you do by
2: podcasts i'm a you shit do. Polymath, basically
1: you're a what a shit
2: what <laughs> i'm a shit polymath A shit polymath. <laughs> i mean like Stephen Fry is a good polymath i'm a shit polymath but i just love doing i get very bored and i love doing different things and i just think there is this theory about, you know, I'm very aware that there's this thing called the 10,000 hour, Malcolm Gladwell talked about it, the 10,000 hour theory. Do you know about this? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Anyone anyone that's truly good at something has spent 10,000 hours, whether you play table tennis or whether you play the violin. And actually with Trigger Happy, I don't know how many hours I did at being hidden camera, but we did so much hidden camera that never got shown. Just filming every day over and over again that we probably got close to ten thousand hours and actually when trigger happy happened i was offered a show in america and if i'd have taken that i could have probably done incredibly well in america because i was bang on it then but i just didn't it just it wasn't what i wanted to do really i'm much more interested in doing sort of two thousand hours in lots of different things but unfortunately it means you end up as a you know jack of all trades master of none but i like that you know
1: yeah too right i mean it's called life right you've got to yeah i
2: think so i mean god imagine just i mean you know fine if i would just made trigger happy the rest of my life i'm sure i'd have been enormously rich but i'd be fucking unhappy i just want to do different stuff you know
1: yeah and you revisited it anyway and it was still absolutely brilliant you know yeah I don't know.
2: yeah it's very weird i didn't want to revisit it but then when i started doing it i thought oh i'm quite enjoying this but yeah. i sort of feel like too old to revisit i don't know my problem is that I always felt there's no example in the history of show business of anyone doing anything successful and then break, having a break and then coming back and it being better. Never, not once except for one time in all of show business. And that's take that. And who the fuck wants to be take that, take that were better the second time round, but I don't want to be take that.
1: <laughs> oh man. Um, no, it's just, it's cool, man. Cause you've done so you've, you have done so much. I just wonder what that drive is, you know, like where that, where that drive comes from. I mean, I,
2: well, I the main if... drive is what Caitlin Moran said, bitch got to pay rent. You know, I mean, I made a yeah. fuckload of money from Trigger Happy, mm-hmm. but I spent it, you know, I mean, Sam, who made the same amount of money as me, because we went 50, 50, Sam's got an accountant wife and he's saved it all up and he does brilliantly. I've just spent it all, but I spent it all gloriously, like in yeah. ridiculous things, buying stupid things and having amazing trips. And so now I think, oh, why did I do that? But I had an amazing time. But also it means it's, it's true that hunger makes you good. I mean, you wonder why when you listen to a band when you're a kid and then the band's massive and then they make a really shit album. You're like, how did that happen? And normally it's because they've suddenly got so much money and they've had kids and they can't be asked. And, and it really is true that hunger and necessity, like yeah, otherwise you get lazy. I got lazy, definitely. And, and, and now I've got to earn a living properly and it makes you hungry. It's no bad thing.
1: Yeah, I'm like, when it was at the height, man, you had all that money and you were pissing up the wall. I've been there, I've done that. Um, yeah. I don't know, did it ever get out of hand? Oh, yeah. Like, I really, like, bad, bad. Like, because I, oh. I honestly can't fucking remember. i too young for tabloids
2: and all that kind of stuff, you know. Oh, no one ever caught me, but insane. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm insane.
1: Just because, like, for me, I I have an off switch. Like, when it comes to booze, I will. I'll know when I reach my limit because I'm scared. I'm anxious. I'm an anxious person. I
2: definitely have, you know, I definitely have a, I've never been able to be addicted to things or stuff. I'm, I've definitely got, I'm not like that, but, um, but I definitely have just done stupid things, but so what? That's what life's about. You know, I've kind of, I've, I've done, I've just done ridiculous things, mostly extravagant, stupid, nonsensical things, but always because they're fun at the time. And I'm very much, you know, seize the day. Like who the fuck knows what's going to happen coming. I
0: mean, yeah.
1: Dan- Danny Baker's a bit like that. He, I remember listening to him once talking about how he just like fucking took his, all his friends and family on holiday.
2: Yeah. Just, like... I've done all sorts of things like that. And the weirdest things, because what's it all about really? Otherwise, I mean, who yeah. gives a, f-? yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously now you're like, what you did, what, but <laughs> so what It just means I've got to make some more money. I mean, I'll try, you know, like it's fine. Yeah. And then, you know, the one thing I do know is that money doesn't make you happy. Yeah. Uh, But it does make you relax, and actually, what it does make you do—it can make two things. It can either make you incredibly lazy, because you don't have any drive. If you have no artistic drive, then having money means fuck it—I don't need to do anything anymore. Hmm. But actually, what money also does, which is a good thing, is if you have enough money, you know. Sometimes people think, "Why did you do that?" And I go, "Because I don't have any fucking money, and had to do it." Whereas if you have a decent amount of money. Money, it allows you to make the choices of things you actually want to do rather than things you have to do. Yeah. So, you know, it's bitch got to pay rent. It's the greatest thing I've ever heard anyone say. And it's just true,
1: you know. Yeah, yeah. no, 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 no. I, I completely agree with you. I was, I was having a chat with um, <clears throat> Sam, Sam Preston from The Ordinary Boys just the other day. And he was saying, yeah, yeah. He was saying exactly the same thing.
2: You know. You I'll just... tell you what, I know a vast amount of people. And I, I don't think I know a single happy, very rich person. They're just not happy. And I've been happy when I'm rich, but I got rid of it and then I want it back. But just those sort of perma-rich, the kind of super yacht level, they're deeply unhappy people. And I know, you know, it doesn't look like it, but they just are and their kids are fucking messes. They're appalling. So I don't feel I have to build all this money to leave to my kids. If I left my kids money, they're just going to be very unhappy. They need to make their own lives and and they're the ones that will make it. Do you
1: think – do you think, like, uh, have you ever watched Succession?
2: Oh, Jesus, it's so beautiful, here. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah I, mean, I know, Succession makes me particularly angry because actually a lot of the writers on Succession, when I moved to the BBC after Trigger Happy, I was assigned lots of people to work with me, and I was like, fuck all of you, I want to work on my own, I'm a punk, and I behaved like an ass." But a lot of those people, Tony Roach and stuff, were all there, and now I look at them writing just a thing of beauty like Succession, you know, which is supposed to be the Murdoch family, essentially. And I've had dippings into part of the Murdoch family around here and stuff. And, like, you just think, whoa, I mean, it, it's bang on. It really is. Yeah, yeah, no. is the, the most beautiful thing ever, yeah.
1: Do you, do you think you could, you're ever going to turn your hand to that? Uh, not necessarily that, but just writing in general, like in terms of, like, a, 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 um, a drama, you know?
2: Well, I never yeah. thought I would, because I kind of thought, well, the one thing I'm good at is... Ad-lib, you know, and so why try and do something that someone else is really good at? But this guy called Mark Freeman, who actually was one of my... I didn't remember, but when I was doing Trigap, he came and gave ideas. And I didn't remember him at all. And he then went on to run BBC Comedy, and he did The Thick of It and stuff. And he now works at Working Title. He's head of uh, TV Working Title. And he approached me, and and I'd, I'd written a script once just for fun, and he loved it. And so he's just commissioned me to write a sitcom. So I'm writing at the moment, and part of me thinks, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. And then part of me thinks, all it is is just trying to make up the dialogue you make normally and just write it down. So I'm very bad at structure and narrative arc, but I'm really good at dialogue. So I am writing a sitcom, but fuck knows. Well, there we go,
1: man. Fucking
2: hell.
1: I'm glad I asked that question. Have you ever ever watched um, Home on Channel 4? Oh, yeah. Fuck me. I did not know that that was in existence, and I binged the shit out of that. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was like bitten by a, written by a comedian that I brushed shoulders with when I did stand-up comedy for like six months. Um, and his name came up. I was like, I recognise that guy. It's so oh, good. That's brilliant. It's the
2: most the annoying thing in the world. When you watch something you absolutely love, and you go, oh, who wrote that? And you go, what? He was yeah. my... <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly, man. I mean, um, Al Campbell, my runners did really well. Like my runner, both my runners, my main runners in Trigger Happy, Al Campbell and Paul Young. Like, Paul Young is now the hidden camera director, he's done everything. And Al Campbell does every comedy drama. I'm like, fucking hell. But they were 17 year old scrotes. What are they doing?
0: <laughs> <But I love laughs>
1: um yeah, like one of one of the things that blows just I'm just gonna pivot slightly here for you, Don. Yeah. So just just hold on. Um, <laughs> um Alan Alan Clark and you you stood against him. Yeah, I did. That is again, man, like talking about stuff that you've you just jack of all trades or whatever you know doing what you want to do where where did that come from what was the inspiration behind that
2: well i was a sort of politics nut anyway i'm obsessed with politics i've got every political biography i studied it i love it and actually alan clark's diaries are probably the greatest modern kind of take on politics and in a funny way alan clark reminded me of me in comedy and that he didn't really belong and he was sort of Good at what he did but he didn't take himself seriously and he kind of felt nervous about it but also arrogant it was like a, a weird thing and uh, when i got to the paramount comedy channel after i'd done mark thomas uh, there was this amazing guy called dan brooke who was running the advertising marketing part and he suddenly saw the stuff i was doing and he was like well we either spend a hundred grand a year saying putting ads up saying paramount comedy channel's funny or i give you the hundred grand and you just try and go and get us in the newspapers with funny stuff, which will make people realise that Paramount Comedy Channel is funny. And because Dan's dad was actually a Tory MP, we were both massively into politics. And so we thought the way to get the most headlines was to try and attack uh, cool Britannia. So I started putting garden millennium domes in Peter Mandelson's garden and uh, sending strippers to William Hague's stag party. And another thing I thought was, well, actually... What's the oldest thing in the book? It's the monster raving loony party. You know, as part of an election, you have to give equal time. And so I I was living in Kensington, Chelsea where Alan Clark was running. So I ran against Alan Clark as the Teddy Bear Alliance. And uh, I hired every teddy bear costume in the country. I had like 900 of them. And we had a demonstration that walked through London. And then just the last minute, because it was Kensington, Chelsea, they were so didn't want me to stand because it was going to ruin their election they told me that i was using a fake name because i'd called myself edward bear so i couldn't stand so i had to go and change my name by deed poll to Ed- edward teddy bear which i <laughs> which i've never changed back actually so my name is still legally edward bear what? so we turned up on the night and then i, I came forth like we beat the ukip and stuff it was fucking brilliant and gave a speech on the night it was it was amazing oh, you know could so you- i mean i just you know i mean i kind of hate comedy election candidates you know the the sort of nutter ones who are trying to sell their tv program but to me it was fascinating just as someone who's into politics because it literally when just the opportunity of standing for election meant you had to go and get the the people to sign you had to pay your deposit mm-hmm. you had to campaign you went to an election night it was like a crash course in how politics works you know like and everyone should have to do it because it's not fucking easy you know even if you're a teddy bear <laughs> how, what was
1: you what, well, how did you campaign? What was well, were you? we like had
2: knocking terrible, on doors. We had I had terrible things like uh, say no to fleas rather than slees. Uh, <laughs> I was campaigning for a single European honey rather than money. <laughs> you know, I did. Um, I think I wanted, There was a TV presenter called Danny Bear. I wanted to make her sports minister. It wasn't a serious campaign. <laughs> but our, our greatest moment was that election. Uh, we kidnapped the Tories. No, let me say it's right, Labour had hired a ch- chicken. No, the Daily Mirror had hired a poor guy to dress as a chicken to follow John Major around because uh, he, wouldn't, um, he wouldn't debate Tony Blair or I can't remember who he wouldn't debate. And so we kidnapped the Tory chicken. Uh, we literally, we just turned up. We had a cab. We'd drive around in a black cab and we got out as the bears and we just he was giving an interview. We just kidnapped him. And took him to a car park. The poor guy was like some runner who just thought he we was some of the IRA or something. was we oh, sorry. <laughs> but the best thing was right at the end, the Daily Mirror, because that everything was animals in those. There was a rhino for World Wildlife, there was the chicken, there was something else. Like every newspaper had a mascot. And some newspaper said, let's just have a press conference on the green of all the animals that have been part of this election. So we said, sure. And we waited till they were all set up. And then we arrived in our taxi with custard pies, and we attacked them and had a food fight. It was fucking brilliant. It was so much.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it goes back to your uh, Belgium com- comedy thing with the uh, pies yeah.
2: and shit, right? It's just—it's yeah. sort of—I'm a pathetic anarchist. I think that's what I am. Like, I love—I just love sort of nice madness. You, you know? think
1: that—that's a pretty good epitaph, don't you think?
2: Yeah. Well, I've got lots of epitaphs. Ruined it for everyone is what I want. Ruined. Uh, a- shut up, Stacy, who's my wife. That's what she thinks will be on it. Yeah. But yeah, um, sort of pathetic rebel. There the, was the, Viz, you know, Viz magazine. Viz used yeah. to have called pathetic sharks, and yeah. it was like sharks that were all dangerous,
0: right. but
2: actually they were just really shy and a bit nervous. I've always felt I'm a pathetic shark. Really. A, w- That's-
1: a woobie gong.
2: Yeah, exactly. You're, exactly-
1: a, you're a fucking whoopie gong. <laughs> yeah. I still think the best one is Spike Milligan, man. I, I, it's, everybody knows it, but I still think. I, yeah, I love
2: that so much. Yeah,
1: I mean, I like it so much. I think I'm just going to have it on mine, and I do genuinely yeah. mean that.
2: Oh, he was a genius. I mean, his two things: when he went on Room 101, and the thing he hated the most was his own house. It was fucking brilliant. <laughs> his wife made him buy a big house, and he hated it. And then when Prince Charles gave some fawning intro to him at the British Comedy Awards. And he just stood up and said, oh, you sniveling little turd. I just, it was amazing. I just loved it. He just, I mean, there's an element where you have to have a bit of madness to have a bit of comedy. You have, it's a payoff. And you can either be very stable in the middle or you have very bad mental times, but you have great comedy times. And he was off the chart mental. Yeah. I I don't think even his comedy was supposed to be funny. It was just, it was insane.
1: God, you know, man, I I grew up on um, Round the Horn. Oh, yeah. Dad dad's army on the telly, but
2: Round the Horn on the um
1: on the cassettes, my mum <laughs> f- f- Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um we used to you know, go on holidays, the Isle of Wight, south of France or whatever, driving around and just that that was my that's my memory. It's like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Round the
2: Horn. Just That's <laughs> a very that's a very cross-generational mix. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fucking mental. I mean, See, my like... dad's not into comedy at all, but he had all these records of a guy called Shelley Berman. And Shelley Berman, weirdly, was a Jewish stand-up comedian in the 60s in New York. And uh, he used to do all these conversations on the phone. It's nothing to do with my phone thing, where he'd just be calling someone for, about a party he went to the night before, And you can't, I can't explain it, but they, that was my first thing. My dad used to find them so funny. And I think they're amazing. And then... Weirdly, one of my favourite shows of all time, *Curb Your Enthusiasm*. I'm watching it, and Larry's dad, who's this guy with massive glasses. I know you very well. and it was fucking Shelley Berman, like when he was 90, you know. So it was amazing. I love things like that.
1: That that is crazy. I just, I'm, I'm going through *Curb* at the moment. I did, I binged it about five, six, maybe ten years ago, whatever. Um, way too quickly way too quickly and yeah, I'm, yeah 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 going through it now I'm setting myself like no more than two episodes a night it's like I'm... a
2: fine wine you need to sip it it takes some... bit have you tell me you've seen Nathan For You no oh my god I love this moment yeah. okay <laughs> then you've got the greatest thing awaiting you ever
0: um, the really? greatest
2: TV show of all time hands down it's on Amazon Prime yeah Nathan For You just I, I'm not going to tell you anything about it just okay. trust trust me on this there's six seasons I can't believe that I could watch the whole thing. Like it'll be the best thing you've ever watched. I know, it's great. <laughs> having talked to you, I know you're gonna love it more than anything you've ever loved.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember when I first watched like uh, Garth merengue and I didn't uh, Dark Place. I didn't know that that existed, and then my life was just like never the same yeah. again. You know that kind of thing. It's like, oh my god! But I'm a. I've just got up to the end of I can't remember what season it is on Curb where um they've just done the producers and uh, yeah. Larry and, and it's fucking, that episode is just unbelievable.
2: It dips for- a bit. There's a moment when he leaves Cheryl and he moves into the, with the black family. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's almost like he's being almost too self-aware and it doesn't work. And then God, I mean the, the, the most recent series just kicks off with Larry just hating everything, like knocking a taking a selfie stick and snapping it over his thing and pushing you know just hating millennials it's great right. yeah i just so, like when he's grumpy yeah oh my yeah. god nathan for you you've got to watch it it's I, incredible
1: i'm gonna i'm gonna yeah. but um what so because you obviously you're, you're a political um geek nerd whatever i my background in this podcast is politics um i you know did did i see you on question time or am i imagining that am i imagining no, I was that? At
2: question time, yeah
1: because yeah. my my thing is I, I think i've spoken to a couple of people on question time but I've, I've always, it's always been in a political context so they've never been able to like really say what it was like what what is it like it's
2: question time because when you watch question time basically it's just full of grey suits talking bollocks and the, the me or the johnny rotten or the you know the the kind of showbiz card what you really want is someone just to go you know what this is what you know and they want you want some entertainment they're looking for that and when i'm at home i'm fucking doing it and i'm writing about it on twitter but the problem is when you get asked on it, you it, it's this terrible dichotomy in you because you're thinking, "I want to just take them apart." but then also you're thinking everyone watching going, "What's this idiot, the squirrel guy doing on?" And you want to go to them, "No, I studied politics. I know all about politics." and I ended up I literally I, I watched myself almost responding like an MP going, well, the uh, the surprise right. is very interesting on both sides, and you can see the producer going, "No." call them cunts (laughs) so it's terrible i just behaved like my the best advice everyone someone there's a guy called john niven who's a brilliant writer who writes amazing books like kill your friends and stuff and uh i hate people give writing advice and stuff but someone on twitter said what's the best advice you'd give a writer and he said write as though both your parents are dead i.e you're yeah. not trying to fucking please someone. And I definitely went on question time as though my parents were watching and I wanted them to be proud of me, not go on and show my ass and tip up the fucking right. you know, desk. And that's what would have made great TV, you know? So, but I didn't, I fucked up very badly. I,
1: I love that, man. They, they did want you to say cunt, but you just, you just did it. You just played could, it, played yeah. it safe. You yeah,
2: know? it was terrible.
1: I had, to, I had that at wedding once. I
2: mean, next I... to James Dellingpole. I mean, I literally, I should have just the moment I realized that, I should have taken the tip <laughs> off my pen and fucking stuck it in his neck over and over again, live on TV. And I would have done the time. I'd have been happy. <laughs> there's no question time about that. That's, you should always do that. Whenever you see him.
1: Gross point blank. Uh, yeah. John Cossack, just full Gross. blown. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I love that. Like I, I just, for, for me, like question time, I've always loved it as a kid. I was such theater, right? I've, I've done loads oh, it of it is. Things yeah loads of acting and stuff and i've always really wanted to I've, you know it's my dream to be on it but like you're you know you're so right you get on i, I can imagine the camera comes on you're desperate to. it's of...
2: very surreal it's a bit like when i went on. Oh, have i got news for you like again you watch have i got news for you you know you think oh i'm funny i can do all that stuff and you can and then when you're on it fucking you hear the music and you have an out of body experience and you think fuck i'm actually on it like that right. and when i was on I got news for you the first time i just sat there staring I remember just playing with a pen and finally Ian Hislop leaned over and just went you've got to say something <laughs> it was like it was terrible. Oh,
0: fucking
2: so terrible. I'm terrible on those things I'm much better on just random I just like you know I don't know it's very odd well
1: when you don't have to think so much right when you just yeah, put too exactly. much emphasis on it you know I
2: like I like ad lib spontaneity is what I like yeah. the moment I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to go on question time in two weeks like it drives me mental I can't think like that
1: God, I bet. I just, I'd love it. And like, because what I was going to actually, I was just thinking about, because obviously this is yonks ago, um, Trigger, when you first started out, um, what was it like? W- what do you think it would be like for for you, like having Twitter then? Like in terms of the the abuse you'd catch or the, the how would you think you'd deal I, I with
2: have, all that? I would have gone utterly insane. I remember just as Trigger Happy was happening, I think it was almost the very first interactive thing, Channel 4 had some sort of website, and I remember thinking, oh, I'll have a look at what they're saying, and the first five were like, shit, Beedle, and the the fifth one said, oh, fuck, this guy not even fit to sit in Chris Morris's lap. And I remember thinking, uh, I remember thinking, but Chris Morris has just done a thing where he's trying to buy uh, fake drugs in London's most dangerous street, and everyone said, how amazing. I fucking live on that street. So I was literally starting to type. And then I just thought, what are you doing? Like, And, and that was just one comment. So imagine yeah. today's Twitter. I've gone mental. I've had a total meltdown. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm bad enough now. I refuse. If someone's rude to me on Twitter, I'm like, fuck you. I'll take you on. And you're right. never going to win. But no. I'm just, fuck them. They're cowards. And they, they can't spell either. But um, no, it would have been a nightmare. So I was very lucky not to yeah. have that. How did
1: you deal with Brexit and... Um... I, mean, I said, how to, what I, what did I say that how did you deal with like past tense how you how did, have you how are you dealing with brexit and then like the whole... It's so
2: funny because brexit uh well I mean you know I used to work for the european union uh, and when the first thing was mooted I think I thought yeah we should get out because it is pretty I kind of thought it is a bit of a corrupt organisation and it is a, and I like things just to be shaken up and then I looked at all the people that were on the side of brexit and I th- thought there's no way i can be with these cunts so i wasn't and then the more I, I looked into the argument the more i thought it was an incredibly stupid thing to do but then what's weird is that was massive and it divided us and then suddenly the virus comes and literally i long for brexit yeah I know, something mate. else yeah. where it's just an argument you know i mean now it's just insanity i
1: know I, it's awful man like i i think i'm doing okay like i've i getting out to the countryside because um, we, we live in London, but we're really close to the countryside. It's fucking weird.
2: Um, and you I live mean, in a flat with no access out. I mean, and little kids would be a nightmare. I mean, you have to get outside. Outside is the it's it's the secret. Like, I go outside and it kind of recharges my batteries yeah. and I can be out of the country in five minutes.
1: Yeah, it's it's just it's, that's how I'm dealing with it at the moment. Just getting back to basics, which, which is kind of weird. Like I, but that's I a think, good thing. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful thing. Like we're all doing that essentially. I think, like, either in in work, like you, you know, you're you're finding. I feel like you're finding a reason slash excuse to go traveling, you know. To oh become, yeah, yeah. You know, and and it's and it's a wonderful thing that you get to do that, you know. Um, because you've got this book. I'm, I'm really conscious about time, and I think it's um good. We need to talk a we need to talk a little bit about that your book. Um, Which you've book? Got, um, Hezbollah walking one. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. How did how did that just come about? Like, because obviously you you're about was this the one you're about to tour with or?
2: Yeah, well, I was sort of yeah. well, not really, because my tour was more about all my my tour is called the Holiday Snaps. Oh, the and snaps. It, okay. The Snaps on you. It was, one, yeah. it was uh, you know, I've been to over a hundred countries since Trigger Happy and traveling and done all sorts of weird things. And I just thought it is a way of trying to get people that are into Trigger Happy and Well Shut Your Mouth, which I prefer to Trigger Happy, which is my show I did the Beeb and 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 say you know what, there's nothing, it's not that different, me doing that and me traveling to the Congo. And I was trying to show why. So the show started with me growing up in Lebanon. Shows how I was obsessed with Tintin. Then it shows how all the way through my comedy shows from Trigger Happy to World Shut Your Mouth, I was always going off to weird places and trying to get some travel in it. And then the natural segue was to go into travel telly and then travel books. But all my travel had been to going to weird places that sounded dangerous. So I did a book called The Dark Tourist. Where I went off to Chernobyl and North Korea and that was a really good book and I'm really proud of it, did really well. And then I became a monster hunter like Tintin and I went off monster hunting, but really it wasn't about monster hunting, it was about the weird just an adventure to go to these weird places. But the Hezbollah Hiking Club was a personal one because I grew up in Beirut and my parents were both travelers and they like went all over the Middle East and archaeologists and I I grew up with that in in me and seeing pictures of all these expeditions and just as I got to the age where I was about to join them the civil war started in 75 and I got stuck in Lebanon sort of literally on a balcony above Beirut watching the war happen for two years and I couldn't go anywhere and then I went to boarding school so I always felt that I grew up in Lebanon and I knew the country really well but I'd never explored it because I couldn't because of the war and I was really aware of that and yeah. so uh, so I needed an excuse to go back, and also there was an issue with my dad we were estranged, which I go into in the book, and my dad died, and that gave me a sort of, phew, I now don't have to go to Lebanon and think, oh, my dad's here, I'm going to go and make my own memories and I found out about this thing called the Lebanon Mountain Trail, and these Lebanese are basically, no one goes to Lebanon as a tourist, but they should, because it's fucking beautiful, it's like the south of France meets California, and they've done this trail, which is sort of on the cover of the book, if you can see it, and it basically... yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It basically goes from the Syrian border in the north to the Israeli border in the south, and it's 27 days walk across the spine of Lebanon. Lebanon is a Mediterranean country, beautiful city-states on the the sea, and then it goes up really sharply in a high mountain range. You can go skiing at the top, and then back down to the desert in Syria. And so the walk is across the top of these mountains, and it's beautiful, and it's stunning. And they set it up so every day you get a guide from a village, takes you to the next village, you stay in people's houses. So for me, it was incredible. And I took two of my oldest friends. So it was kind of like, a have turned 50, let's have an adventure like we used to do when we were kids. But also me, like finding the place I didn't really know when I grew up. But also showing off, like you said, in the show I, I did in Lebanon, sort of, I'm proud of Lebanon, it's so beautiful. And all anyone thinks about Lebanon is, oh, it's the war zone. It's fucking stunning. And I just every day, it's like, it's like playing your best friends a song. And they love it, and you're like, oh, I knew you'd love it. It's like that. Like every day, they're like, I cannot believe this country, and you're like, yeah. I told you, you know. So that's what the book's about. It's a love letter to Lebanon, really. So it's oh. called the Hezbollah Hiking Club, which okay. was the first name oh. I could give it because it's means it can't be sold in the middle east because it's got hezbollah in it so the paperback's coming out next year and it's gonna be called the downhill hiking club but it's i'm pretty proud of it it's a really good book
1: no it's fantastic man it it sounds like to me like you're someone like i this is quite a fucking morbid thing to say but it sounds to me like you might be like if you're into cremation you might be scattering yourself in a few different places well having someone scatter you in a few different places
2: around the world i've got a list of about 80 places it's a nightmare yeah (laughs) Well, it's it's, I think it's the same thing of Jack of all trades, master of none. I'm kind of, I feel really at home in a lot of places, which I think sometimes I'm really jealous of people that just have this one base and they grew up in a house they were born in, they never leave it, they have that consistency. Mm. But on the other hand, I love, my wife's Canadian. Like I'm in love with Canada, these lakes in Muskoka. It's my happy place. Like If you had to choose one place my family would go, it's there. So I'm happy there. I love Cheltenham, which is so odd. Because it was everything that was dull when I was growing up in Lebanon. I love London. I love Miami, weirdly. I'm obsessed with Morocco. So I don't know. When people say, where would you like to live? I think the royal family. I'm not a royalist. But the royal family, get it right. You've got to move on the season. So I would. I, you have to move every season. So I'd, you need four places to live if you can afford it. <laughs> like a winter place, beach place, city place, country place. You know, And I think about that all the time where I'd go. Morocco... Canada, Cotswolds, maybe Miami, New York—I don't know. Changes.
1: Well, man, I used to work for Ringo Starr, and he used to do that.
2: He used to like. What? Um... You can't just drop that.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No. I was a. Well, grounds... for
2: Ringo Starr.
1: Yeah, I was a groundsman for Ringo Starr for like two yeah. years. Yeah, what? I... <laughs> yeah. In L.A. No, no, no. In in uh, Cranley, in Surrey.
2: That's so funny.
1: Yeah, it was it was fucking weird because it was just like that. You'd see him maybe. Half the year, and and he'd come back with a, a, an amazing tan, or be pale and ready to go out to get a tan. But yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, he'd he'd be so nice to talk to as well. You know, he yeah, yeah. totally fucking. You, oh my he, god, I'm so glad for
2: that. It's insane.
1: Yeah, it's it's the only thing genuinely like literally for two years it kept me at that job because his pay was <laughs> an absolute fucking insult. They were like the first six months we'll review your pay. Bearing in mind I was on like fucking 17 grand and then after six months, I worked so fucking hard to get that extra grand and a half a year. Then after six months, they were like, no, fuck off, we're still
2: going to give it to you.
1: But but Ringo is such a... Do you know my
2: favourite story about Ringo Starr? And I don't know if it's true or not, but supposedly he's the tightest Beatle and Ringo Starr, whenever he got a bill, he would write, he'd always write a cheque. Yeah, so he'd write you a cheque from Ringo Starr because he knew that about 80% of the people when they got a cheque from Ringo Starr wouldn't catch it yeah. they'd frame it and put it on the wall yeah. i just love that story I, I i fucking
1: i know there are other there are definitely other famous people that have done that i've heard someone else say that oh god yeah. it's like it's so funny but thankfully he was a really nice guy but it's like oh, yeah one of those fantasy and i was there for his fucking 70th as well 70th birthday we had like fucking paul Amazing. mccartney brian johnson from acdc was there it was oh like, my
2: god okay, cool
1: yeah, it was one of those real pinch me moments. Have you Have you ever had that, like where you're in a room, suddenly like motherfucking crazy superstars start I've walking just,
2: in? I've just had the craziest times, yeah. But I can't yeah. tell you. Yeah, just insane ones. Yeah. I mean,
1: literally just insane ones. Because you, I, I, you you strike me as someone like a kind of like a, a more anarchic Michael Palin
2: with all your travelling. <laughs> you know. See, I once I love Michael Palin so much. Uh, I met him once, and he was just so lovely. But I have to admit that. When I saw him, I saw him once on a road in London. And I was driving, and there was just a tiny part of me thinking, I could just turn right, fucking hit him, keep going. And there's about three people I need to kill to get to that sort of national treasure <laughs> trap thing. And I did, I did consider briefly killing Michael Palin. I have to say, uh, and I would have done. It. I know I didn't
1: do it. Intrusive thoughts, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I just, I really genuinely thought, I looked around, I thought there's no one here. I could just turn, hit him with the door, and I'd be gone. <laughs> love it. I've never told anyone that, but it's yeah. true.
1: Yeah, there we go. Dead, pan <laughs> delivery. I love it. I love
2: it. Um, there's your Hesseltine.
1: There's the Hesseltine. <laughs> Jolly wants to kill Palin. Yeah, fucking hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there we go. Mate, thank you so much for your time.
2: That's all right. But, a really nice chat. That was really good.
1: No, you're, su- you're such a fucking sweetheart. Um yeah, no, I generally I mean that because it's um, it's not often, like I said, I've come from like politics to um, to trying to just trying to give like a, 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 essentially doing what you've done. Really,
2: I've done. Yeah, but this I, is a much more interesting chat. Just than I just I can't tell you how I, I know within five minutes we're having a chat whether it's going to be a dull one or, you know, the usual questions or whatever. And that was just, it was interesting. It just ranged everywhere. It was great. Nice, but I'm man. so jealous that your ring is start. like, I just, yeah. you beat me at that. Like, you just <laughs> killed me <laughs> with that at the end. I've, I've always have always I've enjoyed that. And send me, um, when, when you got it ready and stuff, just send it to me and I'll link it up and stuff.
1: Yeah, that's really sweet of you, man. I It's
2: yeah, a phrase, link up, but you know what I'm saying. I know, I know, what you
1: mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. But, no, um, I really enjoyed that. Thanks a lot for that. Cool, man. And enjoy, enjoy the uh, enjoy the countryside, and uh, well, take stay care. Safe. It'll all be good.